0: Hey, everyone. Uh, I have a very exciting show for you today, if not a little bit different than a lot of the podcasts or interviews we've done on this channel. And I say that because a lot of the discussions we've had with investors are really about exciting and big plans and you know the next thing and the next deal. And uh, I was attracted to Jonathan Twomley because of a post he had where he indicated he said basically said, I'm out, pulled the ripcord. So I'm like, I got to get this guy on the phone because he kind of sees the world the same way I do. We've invested through a cycle before. And I'm like, and and we finally got it done. So let's uh, let's welcome Jonathan Twombly to the show. How are you doing this morning, Jonathan? I am great, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's wonderful, Jonathan. Why don't uh, why don't we first introduce the world to you? Sort of who you are, what you are in the country, what do you kind of do, and and, and we'll go from there.
1: So uh, as you said, I'm Jonathan Twombly. I am a former Wall Street lawyer who is now a real estate investor, uh, do a syndication business. I'm based here in Brooklyn, New York, but. Uh, We invest out of town. So all of the stuff that we had bought and sold is in the South Carolina, well, not the South Carolina area, in South Carolina. Uh, We ramped up to about 400 units. It's worth 25 million bucks at the time that we sold. Um, We just closed on that in the end of February. And now I'm just preparing for the next go round whenever that's going to happen.
0: Yeah. So let's be clear. When you say exited, like you're holding nothing right now. I sold it all. I sold the whole thing. So, you know, where some people are talking about going all in, you know, seeing roses, rainbows and unicorns in the future, you're, you're seeing uh, obviously danger signs. And uh, so, so what is it you're seeing that decided you to take your chips off the table and go back to your room and call it a night?
1: So there are really a, a lot of things. I mean, I, so I'm not going to proclaim that I have any kind of crystal ball. You know, I, I don't think I, I'm reading the same thing everybody else is reading. But my interpretation of it is different. And I think it's because I, I'm fundamentally like kind of a contrarian investor. Whenever anything is too hot, it scares me. Whenever anybody's complaining about stuff, I start asking why. Like why why do they think this is so bad? Right. So I'm always looking for the the opposite angle. Like so I got interested in South Carolina in the first place because everybody was piling into Texas and that just instantly made me nervous. Right. I was like, okay, if everybody's going there, it can't, it's either overpriced or like there's some hype going on because it can't possibly be that good, right? And so I started looking for other stuff. I was like, well, what else is going on? And I noticed that, you know, the demographics in, in the Carolinas were pretty much as good as Texas, but nobody was saying anything about them, right? It wasn't on anybody's radar, which to me was like, okay, that's like crack. Like I had to go after that. Then what happened is everybody started, eventually the market catches up, right? You can't hide that data forever. Yeah. And especially when people start seeing like how overpriced Texas was, they did the same thing as me. Started looking around for other opportunities. Now the opportunity in the Carolinas is gone because everybody is piled in there too. Uh, you know, and over time, everybody's piled into everything. So, so that's like with that background of wanting to like look where people aren't looking and not just follow the crowd. Because I don't think you make money following the crowd. I think usually by the time you hear about what the crowd is doing it's already too late and that's like your typical new investor story by the time they hear about any opportunity that opportunity is long gone even though they convince themselves that the opportunity still exists um so i you know i'm a student of markets i'm, I'm really fascinated by the way the markets work i'm fascinated with behavioral you know behavioral economics and just looking at you know how long this cycle had gone on how overpriced assets were compared to their historical you know long term averages you know the kinds of cap rates people were paying for assets which made no sense like i couldn't understand for instance why 5 years ago you know people were would only you know they needed to get 8 cents to to spend a dollar and then 5 years later they're willing to expend that same dollar for 4 cents or 5 cents like i don't understand nothing has changed right it 's the same dollar, right so why is the dollar worth half as much to you now? That all has to do with psychology right uh, it 's investor psychology has nothing to do with economics, nothing to do with fundamentals yeah. so all of that combined to make me very, very anxious and you know think and markets always crash from the top right they don 't crash from the bottom <laughs> they crash they crash when they crash when everybody thinks that this is going to go on forever, and when you start hearing. The stories in the market of it's a new paradigm, or ah. this time is different, or and and when people can start giving you laundry lists of why like crashes aren't going to happen anymore, I mean it was just an, I just read an article yesterday um, about a, a bunch of people running around out there talking about the stock market about, about how because of the the Fed's loose money policies, we're never going to have another recession again. Like, honestly, these are like people being interviewed on TV who are are supposedly professionals who are saying we're never going to have another recession again because the Fed has got it all figured out. Wow. As soon as you start hearing that stuff, that's the signal that it's time to run for the exit, right? So that got me thinking about, okay, really sort of strategically... what should I be thinking about my business? And a couple of things kind of fed into the decision. Like one was that, well, the very first thing that, that made me start thinking about it was I had one deal that just was like, just a dog of a deal. Like everybody's got one, right? Like, yeah, just, just uh, this deal just had everything go wrong with it that could possibly go wrong with it. And the, I only had one investor in that deal and he said, look, Jonathan, just, just sell this thing. It's just not, I, like, I want to just use the money for something else. Let's just go do something, you know, just to sell it. And I, that got me thinking like, you know, this is actually a pretty good time to sell. And I started thinking more and more about it and thinking like, you know what, I actually th- feel like I have an obligation to my investors to sell now because I, I don't think the prices can go up any higher than they are right now, but I think there's a great chance that they will go lower from here. Mm-hmm. So, I, my choices are I can either sell now, make really fantastic returns for my investors, make everybody very happy, lock in a track record, set myself up for future success, or I could miss the window, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll have another good run for ne- next year or two, but basically miss that opportunity to sell. And then, frankly, either be looking at you know, refinancing in a different environment in a couple of years or trying to sell in a couple of years when it's really uncertain, yeah. You know, I could tell you wh- I could tell you what the market is right now, and the market right now is the seller's market. And if you hold assets, it's a great time to sell. I can't tell you what the market's going to look like tomorrow, or a year from now, or three years from now. You know, when we would have to refinance our debt. So it yeah. seemed to me when you combine all of those things together, j- just the signals were just flashing like sell, make the money for your investors now while they're getting while the going is good, and then start focusing on the, the next cycle.
0: Uh, there's so many questions there, th- and thank you for all of that. L- let's let's. I have so many questions about what your activity is today, but let's not be remiss and talk about how long it took you to build this portfolio uh, okay. that was eventually sold for 25 million. Right? When did you start? How many kind of assets? And, and let's paint the picture of the present that ultimately became the 25 million
1: dollar exit. So, yeah. So you know, it's a long story. I did not. Sure. This didn't happen overnight. Uh, there was a lot of struggle up front. I. I'll try to condense this as much as possible, but I, I, it took me, but so I was in a fortunate position. Let's back up even further. I was in a fortunate position to be able to do this full time Mm -hmm. from the start because on the one hand, I, I lost my job as a lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. But I was done. I was burned out. I had no interest in going back to it. So So when I lost my job, it was, I was actually happy about it. Um, and I also lived very frugally up until then. So I'd saved a lot of money and I was able to, to say to my wife, like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to take a chance on something else. Right. So we had that cushion to fall yeah. back on. Right. Yeah. So I was in a fortunate position where I could focus on this full time. That being said, it still took me three years to get my first deal closed. I had a couple of years in a different partner and we got a couple of deals under contract and it was like, it was back in 2011, it was banks were still skittish and mm-hmm. we had banks back out on us. We had all kinds of stuff happen and, and wound up breaking up because we just thought the, the world is telling us something. Maybe we should just go our separate ways. Yep. Um, and then I formed this business that I have now, and it still took me a year to get uh, that first deal closed because of all of the just the newbie stuff that you go through, like all of the effort it takes to yeah. get brokers to take you seriously, and and this was, and I frankly I had money, like I had friends, I had deep-pocketed friends who were like, Jonathan, you know, we'll invest with you if you if you do this. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to worry about the money part of it, but just getting the deals, even with the money. And this is this is this is 2013, yeah, not 2019 when deals were a lot easier to come by, and it still was very difficult to get the real good commercial brokers to take me seriously. Yeah. So it took me a year for that to happen. Then once it did, once we got that first deal, then you know, basically over the course of 11 months, we closed on three more and built the whole portfolio over the course of like, I guess, really sort of end of 2013 to beginning of 2015. So it's like a year and a half okay. by the time, but between the first signing of the first contract and the closing of the last one. And then what happened was by 2015, I'd noticed that the prices were really starting to ramp up mm-hmm. and we continued making offers, but basically what happened was like we were getting the difference between our offers and the, what the sellers wanted was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Yeah. So we weren't we weren't, adjust, we weren't following the sellers up in their pricing demands and we sort of stuck to our guns, but it just started getting, mm. we just were getting priced out by even more and more and more. And by 2016, then prices were really off the charts. And if you kind of look at the data looking backward now, you can see that the peak was reached in 2016 and it's just kind of, it's just been flat ever since then, right? And it, pricing hasn't been able to go higher because it just literally can't right. go any higher than it is now, but it's been sort of stuck there. So we, have, we didn't buy anything after that point because, you know, just waiting for things to calm down, which they didn't. I know we're going to talk about like probably the explosion of syndicators yeah later but i i also kind of you know looking back on things i i also believe that 2016 is really when the syndication explosion happened like that's when i mm. started started to see just people coming out of the woodwork you know like like people frankly people who had like found me somehow in 2014 and called me for advice and were like, I don't know what to do with my life and maybe I'll buy a single family house. Like I was seeing syndication offerings from these people, you know, and, and that point, I I just think that there's like, there's a connection between these two things at the pricing of assets being so high, the explosion of syndication, the availability of just tons of money, uh, you know, just led to this point where we hit this plateau in 2016 which I think, you know, the longer it goes, the more likely it is to collapse. But,
0: you know. Yeah, and, and collapse spectacularly, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, so again, let's put the, put the bow on the, on the portfolio, the present that you built with your investors. So four, four assets, yeah. uh, total unit count, all in
1: South Carolina, what, what city? So uh, half of it was in, in Greenberg, sorry, Greenville, and half of it was in Spartanburg. Okay. So they used to be one MSA, but it was split up in the last census but they're they're basically like 30 minutes apart along okay. the I-5 corridor in right. in western south carolina it's a very heavily fast growing part of the state oh well here's another thing too just to, that went into the um the decision making to sell yeah uh, so i i noticed a couple of things about the last recession and, and i think that these are kind of common to all recessions but you know, there's a lot of talk out there about how c-class property and rental property does well in recessions right there's been this this narrative that's been composed over the last you know 10 years or so it's it's not true right when you have a recession people lose their jobs and they can't pay rent and and the lower down they are on the economic spectrum Mm -hmm. the the more jobs they lose and the less they can pay their rent so here here and manufacturing gets whacked really badly in recessions so here I was in a market, with C-class properties, right? In a heavily manufacturing part of the state, ah. right? And that started making me really nervous thinking about where things are going, right? Like I didn't really want to be holding on to C-class properties that are already vulnerable anyway yeah. in a manufacturing area, which is going to be vulnerable in a recession and, you know, just felt like the time to exit you know all those things put together super high crazy pricing you know looking at vulnerability on the downside coming up when the recession hits you know, it's going to hit we know it's going to hit at some point yeah. so those things and and frankly you know looking at like a property that was struggling even as great as things are now yeah like what would happen in a recession to that property right so um, that was a scary thought to me so i thought like if i can find somebody frankly to overpay me for this property like, why would I not do that? Right. Why would I not sell it? So, um, and I felt I owed it to my investors to do so, but, but, um, yeah, so sorry, I got off on a little no, tangent question, what, but
0: it's wonderful. So I just want to wrap this up. So you spent, so about 13 or 14 months sort of start to finish four assets. Then you decide because you're right, you read the tea leaves, you see what's going on, you see the indicators, your experience says, um, you know,
1: time to exit. So you list, you list it as a package, I'm guessing? Yep. Well, so here's what happened. So we actually first tried to sell in 2017 and we had, I had uh, assumable debt on all of the property and I didn't wanna pay the, oh, the penalties, yeah. right? So I listed it as an assumable, assumable debt deal um, and really didn't get anywhere with it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and actually decided, all right, you know what? Maybe we'll just stick with the plan and and not sell but then what happened was a year but we started getting you know we're getting phone calls every day about will you sell will you sell will you sell and finally some some brokers that i know called me up and said hey jonathan look we've got some sellers who were some sorry some buyers who are looking at your properties would you sell and i i threw out basically a like go away and leave me alone number Mm. and they said we'll get back to you and they came back and said yes they'll 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 buy for that price. Wow. So, and, but but I had just made the decision at that point not to make an an assumption deal. Yeah. And pay the penalties, and and even with paying the penalties, the price that was so high that they offered that paying the penalty, it just still made sense even paying the penalties. Yeah. So you know, and then at the end of the day, know we're still doing the final accounting. We're still like waiting for insurance refund checks and we're waiting for the last vendor bills yeah. to come in and all that sort of stuff that frankly has taken a lot more time than I expected because this huh. is the first time I've exited. But you know, I thought we, I, I made the big mistake of like, we, we closed and I, t- wrote, I wrote to my, all my investors like, yeah, I'll be paying you in a week. Like n- that turned yeah. out to <laughs> I'll be off by about 12 weeks or so. Um, <laughs> we're still working on it. I got the, you know, I, re- I, I figured out that I could return all of their, their investment. Yes, so I did that return the investment, but we're still waiting on the accounting. But yep. all that being said, the, when we wrap it all up in a bow, we're going to have achieved you know uh, over twenty percent annualized yeah. returns on these deals, which I feel is is great for the. Oh, uh, that's net net of everything. I mean, that's like net after net I had, net twenty percent to them, yeah. you know, annualized for over four or five years. So that's, that's, some of uh, them have basically doubled their money. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So, so uh, I'm guessing. So you gave them a walkaway number of 25 million. They came back and said, "Cool, let's do it." So it actually never was in on LoopNet
1: or MLS or wherever you would post it. You no, know, the second products. time around never got listed. The first time around, you know, it was a listed deal with with brokers in South yeah. Carolina who blasted it out to huh. you know a lot of people. But uh, it, the assumption part of it turned people off. Right. Yeah. So we just didn't get the kind of offers got that it. we wanted. Okay. But then when the kind of off Market, you know, individual calls kept coming. Then, you know, I yeah. thought, well, this just makes sense. To yeah. what, 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 was,
0: what was happening is people were, well, let's just talk about it now. Right. I think we both, we both feel it in the environment. We, I don't know anything nearly as large as you, but having apartment buildings just means you're on brokers radars and they're just calling you all the time going, will you sell, will you sell? You know, I got, I got, I got to create my walkaway numbers. That's a great idea. Um, I'm going to do that today. For all my apartment buildings. Uh, yeah. But, I mean,
1: it's, it's a great time to, it's a great time to do it. You know?
0: Yeah. 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 There's a, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to do that today. So there's, there's a tip of the day, at least, at least for me, that's, that's awesome. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, right? Um, what changed in 2016, the syndicators, we, we both have felt that we both, we both see it. I actually refer to it as a Grant Cardone effect. I don't know if he gets, gets the credit or not. Uh, but with his, YouTube present in marketing machine. Um, I think there's lots of people that believe they can sort of follow that model, right? Bigger is better, 50 units and above all of that. Uh, do you see it the same way or, or,
1: you know, what kind of cause of that spark you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like the really underlying issue is just the availability of so much money in the system, mm-hmm. right? There's so, so much debt, so easy to get debt and there's just been like a, a feedback loop that has started where, you know, people, the people who got in early have been making money. And then that kind of like fuels this narrative of how easy it is. And then, so that's sort of like, you know, the availability of all this cash, I think is the first piece of the puzzle, but then on top layered on top of that is like the Grant Cardone and like, you know, other people I won't mention by name because they're Mm -hmm. friends of mine, but you know, like, like there, there are, there are people out there who have created really, really good marketing machines around investing in multifamily and they, you know, with, with the help of say bigger pockets, which didn't exist the last time around with the help of podcasting, which didn't exist the last time around, you know, the, the prevalence of, Facebook groups. I mean, there's just there's just so many different pieces of this of the the marketing environment that have contributed to the feeling that this is easy, this is safe, um, and you know. I've also seen one other thing, and I noticed this really started happening around 2016, is the emergence of of specialized Money raisers, right? Hmm. So, when I first got started in the business, I, you know, I had to raise the money on my own. I would get calls from people who were raising money for for a fee, right? Which was which was illegal, but they were all doing it under trying to do it under the radar, right? But it was always like three percent for you know three three percent for the capital that I bring you, right? But all of those guys we're all like, Jonathan, your deals are too small. You're only raising a million dollars of capital. Uh, you know, if it's a $5 million raise or a $10 million raise, I can help you. Cause they all had like family office and institutional contacts. There wasn't anybody doing it at a lower level. Uh, then what happened was that somebody figured out that it's probably safe to raise money without a broker dealer license if you become part of the sponsor team. Right? So now, From about 2016, I started noticing all these people who were like decided you know they didn't want to be a sponsor, but they're going to raise money for other sponsors, and um, and they're and the way they're going to get around the SEC rules is to become part of the sponsor team, get a piece of the deal rather than a commission, right? Got it. There's still some, there's still it's still an open question whether this is actually legal or not, but. And we'll see what happens. You know, the the SEC may decide to make an example of someone uh-huh. soon, right? But they always leave things vague so they have more flexibility to do what you know. Mm-hmm. But it's still an open question. But you know, on the one hand, like this is really efficient. Like I think it's it's actually in one way, like really great that there are people who now are just focused on raising money. And like if you're someone like me who doesn't really like the money-raising part of it, like you can just focus on doing deals. But on the other hand, it's like it's just contributed to the more availability of money mm-hmm. in the system and which drives prices higher, right? Just, yeah. just the amount of money in the system. And, and then you know you've got, even some of the bigger coaches out there have got their kind of own ecosystems of people going after, like raising money together from each other and going after deals and even competing with each other for the same deals in the same markets and driving prices up and like, all kinds of stuff. So I just feel like the the world is awash in money right now and it's, it's causing prices to go up and that's sort of never a good situation. Right. It's always, we wind up at the top of every cycle. This is the same story, just a different form. Right.
0: Yeah. And I want to hit that really hard because you say it so eloquently, I haven't been able to kind of frame it that way, but the thing that scares me because I invested through the last cycle, right? I started in 03. So I saw this movie firsthand but for me, the story or the rhyme, you know, history repeats itself, all of that. People have, you know, 10-year mar- memories and 12-year cycles and all that stuff. Um, it's just the asset class was different. The last time we had this was houses, I think, right? Yeah. Because of HDTV and the flipping shows were the big deal. And then we had Countrywide and IndyMac giving anybody a loan with liar loans, right? So kind of the same story, but yeah. the asset class is different. So folks, if you don't remember what happened after 08, look it up. Because that's going to happen again, in my opinion, in the apartment sector, the multifamily sector. Is that a fair analogy or or link in your mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think, yeah. Because look, what happened in in the so the the standards for buying single family houses got much tighter after the recession, mm-hmm. right? Like like they really clamped down on all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it became harder. To be an investor in single-family houses, right? Mm-hmm. So all the money had to go somewhere, you know, and especially given the fact that, like, they went and created all this money out of thin air, yeah, right. So all that money now had to go someplace else, mm-hmm. and one of the places it went into was multifamily, right? And and interesting, these, and these things have like, you know, how, so there's like there's a an expression like you know the you know, what is it? Something like the, the, the fed is always preparing to fight the last recession, you know, Uh or like, you know, the general is always preparing to fight the last war. And, and I think there's, there's kind of a, like a dynamic where people look around and they, they say, well, what did well the last time or what's safe? Certainly I did this too. I got into multifamily rather than, you know, anything else I could have bought, like, retail or hotels or industrial or office or whatever because i i went through the the thought process like well you know in a recession all those businesses can go poof overnight but people still have to have need some place to live and so multifamily is a you know a good deal right so and i think everybody else also went through that same thought process and but now you have the situation where i think like multifamily is going to be a victim of its own success right it's it 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 did have those characteristics it still does have those characteristics but the problem is it makes sense when you pay like one price for it but it doesn't make sense when you pay another price for it like a higher price for it right so but because of the perceived safety everybody has driven the price up and when you do that like you, you know you know like when you studied science in high school and you learned about like potential energy, you know, yeah. like the higher you lift the ball off the ground, the more potential energy it has for when you release it. Like markets are kind of like that, right? The higher yeah. they go up, the more risk they contain. Yeah. You know, they can take the least risk that a market has is after the crash. That's when, but that's when everybody's scared and they don't want to invest. Right. <laughs> but there's, but the, but the market has been de-risked after a crash. Yes. The opposite happens though, is when the market is rising, it's basically accumulating risk as it rises. Yeah. And, but, and, but people see it rising and they think it's safe. It's getting, it's getting riskier and riskier, and riskier but the perception from the amateur investor is that it's getting safer and safer and safer because it's going up. Yeah. And, and so, and you just have this in every single cycle, in every single asset class that there is, whether it's stocks or, or bonds or real estate. And then, you know, when things go up high enough, then you get the, the crazies coming out of the woodwork saying it's going to go up forever. And these are the 10 reasons why, and you don't have to worry about any of the risks because, there's no more risk in the system. You know, all the, all the mortgages are, you know, have been collateralized and they're uncorrelated with each other. So they can't all possibly go boom at the same time. Like we've heard that story before, how how there was no, how, how risk had been eliminated from the mortgage market because of the way they had packaged those. I remember. (laughs) Right. So now we're hearing the same thing about multifamily. Yeah. It has, it has no risk because in a recession, it'll do better. That's, complete BS. It will not do better in a recession. There's a good chance it's going to do a lot worse. You no, know, Not forever. It's like everything else. It'll go down and it'll come back up. But like if you're, if you buy at the top and it, and you know, like you can't, you can't, you may not survive the bottom.
0: Yeah. No, that's yeah. These assets are tied to the debt. And if you can't fund the debt, they're going to take the asset. And exactly. I, I've seen exactly. it many times. So the other thing I want to hit on, you've hit on it a couple of times is your obligation to your investors. I, I, I talk to, I'll call them new syndicators all the time, right? They kind of seek me out uh, either to buy my stuff or ask for advice or all of that. Um, But they're all, they all seem hyped up on caffeine, right? They're all wide eyed and eager And, and maybe it's your wall street background. I don't know, but you seem to come at this from a very measured state with the right attitude and obligation, right? Your, your decision is first to your investors. And why don't you sort of talk about that and, and remind other either would be, or people thinking about syndication, why the obligation to your investors is so critical.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a number of different reasons. So there's like kind of legal reasons and moral reasons and business reasons, right? For (laughs) for all of them. Right. So, (laughs) but you know, coming from the background as a lawyer, you know, we're trained to to understand that our obligation is to our client. We have a fiduciary obligation to our client to put their interests first. So, you know, I had that like whacked into me for 12 years before getting into real estate. So that's just like second nature to me. Yeah. Like my investors come, their interests come first. Like I have to put them first no matter what. Mm -hmm. If there's a choice between me benefiting and them benefiting, I have to choose this. So that is, and when you take other people's money as an investor, right, you are actually legally their fiduciary, right? So you have an actual legal obligation to put their interests first. And if you don't, they can sue the crap out of you. Right. I mean, not just like get their money back, but punitive damages, and they can get multiples of their money back from you. Right. So if you screw over your investors, you are are probably looking at bankruptcy, right? Because they're going to take what they invested with you plus everything else you've got. Right. So, so you have this really important legal obligation like to keep, their interests first then ethically of course like if somebody is like giving you money and entrusting money with you right like i feel very morally obligated to to make sure that they make money even if i am not making money right mm-hmm. that's just you know and also there's other things that come with it keeping them informed you know if bad, bad news happens you have to let them know right away like mm-hmm. there's you know you can't do things that conflict with their interest either right you have to you know unless it's to disclose, disclose and agreed to so you, you have to You have like a moral obligation to keep their interest first, and finally, there's a business obligation, which is like, it's you know Warren Buffett sums this up better than anybody. So I won't. I'll just quote what he says. Yeah, he says you have to be long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Right, if you're short-term greedy, which is like you put yourself first, you you charge fees through the roof and you get paid whether your investors get paid or not like you may be legally obligated to do that because you've disclosed it in all your deal documents and and you can't get sued for it like it's perfectly legal right but if you make a bunch of money and your investors get screwed they're not going to invest with you again right Mm -hmm. so you got a one-time hit and then you're done right so you want to be long-term greedy which is think about like if, you, if the shoe was on the other foot and you were putting money with somebody, would you be happy with this deal, right? Yeah. And and I think and from the syndicator's point of view, what I think a lot of people don't really don't really get or don't really think about very much is that the people, for the most part, who are in, investing in uh, in syndications, they are like legally considered sophisticated or legally considered accredited because they meet some kind of criteria. They don't actually really understand these deals very (laughs) well, right? And they are not going to read all the deal documents and they don't understand the underwriting. So they oftentimes are, uh, you know, like they think they're getting a great deal because they got promised an 8% you know, preferred return and where else can you get that? Now put aside whether they're, you know, at this point in the cycle, whether they're even going to meet that pref, but you know, you've got what I call like the 50 dentist deal and not to disparage dentists, but like their expertise is teeth. It's not sophisticated financial investments. Right. So they are going to look at this. They're going to look at the stock market. They're going to look at like CDs and they're going to say, wow, 8% is great. Now if there are deals out there that I know of where essentially like, you know, they're going to get that 8% and the sponsors going to get everything else because of the way the deal is structured, all the upside, all of everything. Mm. Right. You know, or there's deals. When I first started out, what I was taught to do, uh, yeah, I I didn't go through any programs myself, but my first partner did. So I kind of like got all the stuff from her and, and that mentor was saying basically like it's a 50 50 split. They put up all the money, you do all the work, you split it 50 50. You know, it's a great deal for everyone. That kind of works with people who don't really understand how how these deals are structured. Yeah. But when I took this to like my Wall Street friends yeah. for money, they were like, Are you insane? I'm supposed to give you all the money and take all the risk, and I'm only getting 50% of the profits. Like, you must be nuts. Yeah. And so I think that like these a lot of sponsors are sort of counting on the the lack of sophistication, I don't think consciously, like, I don't think they're doing this like in a fraudulent way. No, yeah, I agree. I like, yeah. like indirectly, like they're doing it, they're, they're kind of counting on subconsciously or without thinking about it the fact that their investors are not going to push back on this deal. Yep. They're not going to push back on these fees, they're not going to push back on the economic split uh, because they can't get a better deal elsewhere. Taking this back to like the fiduciary discussion and like the long term interests. I feel personally that it's in it's in my long-term interest to make sure that my investors are getting a really good deal, yeah. right? This is not an unfair deal. It's not structured to benefit me. Like I'm going to make money if they do well, you know, like I certainly I certainly want to make money. Like I'm not in this, this is not a charity, yeah. right? I'm in this business to make money and I plan to make a lot of money doing it, but I want my investors to really make a lot of money, right? Like I want I want them to feel really happy with the deal and if they're ever in a situation where they start digging into the details of my deals, I don't want them to find anything that's going to make them unhappy about this situation. right? Yeah. But I, but I have clients come to me and, and say, you know, I always tell people if you're thinking of investing in a deal and you just like want another set of eyes on it just to, so you get comfortable with it, I'm happy to look it over and give you my thoughts. And I'm not trying to shoot down anybody's deal, like, but I'm just like, if I see something in there that makes me uncomfortable, yeah. I'm going to tell you. Right. And yeah. if I, if I don't, then I'm going to say, Hey, I don't find any, you know, looks, looks, perfectly looks fine. good to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: And I've seen, I've seen some stuff in some of these sponsor packages, which is just like, I just don't feel it's right. And I've pe- and pe- or people have complained to me because they know I'm a sympathetic ear. Like just last night I had a drink with, with, one of my uh, investors and he was like, yeah, I saw this deal. And like, I couldn't believe the fees that this guy was taking out of this deal. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and so, um, and he's somebody who gets it cause he's a wall street guy. Right. So he yeah. understands, but like the, the, you know, the guy, the doctor who's just focusing on medicine and doing it, being a great doctor and it's just like, what do I do with my money? Oh, this seems like a great deal. I'm going to get 8% and it's going to be a 20 IRR and like, they're not, yeah unpacking, you know, they're not looking at it and saying, wow, you know, this is a 20 IRR deal, but I should really be getting a 30 IRR in this deal because this is a rich deal yeah." and like I should be getting more of it because I'm putting up all the money. Right. They're just thinking, Oh, it's a good deal. And they're not kind of like digging into it deeper, but like the sophisticated guys will look at those deals and they'll be like, this isn't, I'm not, I don't, I I don't care that it's a 20% IRR, like 20, 20 IRR. Because I know this is a 40 IR deal and there's no way that you, Mr. Sponsor, who's putting up little or no money should be entitled to half of the economics on this just because you found the deal, right? So totally agree. That's my rant. Yeah, no,
0: that's awesome. So one of the things I knew I wanted to talk to you about is, is you've called your shot and you've called it publicly and said, I'm out, I'm sweeping the chips off the table. I'm going back to my hotel room, right? To use the Vegas analogy, but you know, the party's still going on which, you know, parties do, you know, this party could go on another month. It could go on 48 more months. So what does a guy like you who called his shot do? Because you have, you pulled your capital off, you have your liquid, your investors are liquid and they're happy, which means they want to invest again most of the time. What, what do you do? Do you just, do you, do you just punch out on vacation for a while and wait till the fire to happen? Or do you keep looking or I mean, what, what's a guy do when you call your shot and you, you, you did it?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, this is a tough, honestly, this is a tough question. And, um, so, you know, I, I, I wish I could say I made enough money to like just go off to the beach for the rest of my life, but that wasn't true. I still got to work for a living. Right. So, um, so what do I do now? Well, one thing that I, that I am doing is continuing to bring investors onto my platform to get ready for the next time. Okay. Right? So, so I, I do believe that there will be bargains again in this, yeah. you know, it, it, there, it always happens, right? You know, the business cycle hasn't ended yet. They haven't repealed that law yet. Right? <laughs> That's a good one. The law of gravity has not been repealed yet, right? So it's it's gonna happen again. But you ask a good question, like, well, how long can I wait this out? Right. Yeah. Um, and it look it, it is a good question. If it goes on for five more years, honestly, like I'm screwed. Like I don't know, I can't just sit on my hands for five more years, right? Yeah. Like it's just like I'll be I'll be out of out of business your your investors would get itchy right yeah they'll go they'll go to someone someone else or you know whatever like but um but i you know my my assessment of the risk hasn't changed like there's not anything that's going to tell me like if this goes on for another year that you know what well things have changed now the market's going to continue to go up like at best it's going to hold where it is for a while okay at at best Best. and so what I'm do like what I'm doing, as I started saying before, is like I'm talking, you know, I still bring investors in, I have a conversation with them, I tell I explain my philosophy, explain my view. I say, if you're patient, join my platform. Uh, you know, you don't have to really do anything, there's no obligation. You don't have yeah. to do anything on my platform. But if you're a patient person and you don't need the money, you don't need to spend the money this minute, join my platform. I'll tell them like if you do need to spend this money, the money right now, I can introduce you to 10 friends who are doing deals right now and you can invest with them. And I'm happy to do that too. Um, but for my platform, you know, this is, this is a patient platform. We're waiting for the time when the real bargains come in terms of, you know, making a living, um, you know, I'm building out a coaching platform. It's something I, I I love teaching this stuff. And I also feel like there are some excellent teachers out there, but there are also some really people who are just, you know, serving up a lot of misinformation yeah. and, and a lot of, a lot of hype. And I, I feel just the way I do about investors, like feeling a strong obligation to make sure they're getting a, a good deal. I feel the same way with respect to students. I feel a really strong, you know, mission about getting good information out to people and, and frankly helping them do what I'm doing right now, which is getting my ducks lined up for when the great opportunity arrives. Right. So, so the program that I put together is really geared towards that. It's geared towards helping people, you know, get their broker relationships in line get their investor relationships in line really understand their markets and really be ready to pounce the minute the opportunity is there because i you know having come into the the business in 2011 even then i just remember feeling this great sense of like like envy about the people who were in in 2009 and <laughs> buying you know buying deals like for pennies on the dollar oh, yeah. and even by 2011 these guys some of them were making millions you know yes. and and so i you know i feel like now we could see the writing on the wall, obviously we don't know when it's gonna happen, but we can certainly start preparing for when it does. And so you know, part of my mission is to help other people also get ready for yeah. that. And, and I also feel like for new students, you know, people trying to break into this game, they've been fed a lot of hype, right? And they don't understand the market cycle, and they think it's gonna go on forever, and there's a lot of opportunity for them to get really hurt. So like on the one hand, I wanna make sure that they, they really understand the risk involved, and on the other hand, get ready for when the real opportunity is there. So that's, that's what I'm focused on these
0: days. Well, let's, let's just, let's close with that. Tell, t- tell more about the course, where they can find it, research you, or, or, or you know, cause it, that, that, you know, getting it from somebody who's brave enough to call your shot, put it out there in a very logical manner is what people need to see. It's not all sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns. This is, this, this is going to hurt eventually. So,
1: um, and, and, you know, look like Warren Buffett. I I, I talk about Warren Buffett all the time because I really am a a big fan of his philosophy of investing. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of his many, the many great things that he said was, you know, the rule number one of investing is don't lose money. Yeah. Rule number two is refer to rule number one. Yes. Right. And, and what that, and what that means, it's not like, Oh yeah, don't lose money. Like that's really obvious. What that means is like, your focus should not be on like how much money you're going to make and how great this could be. Your focus should be on how do I eliminate the downside risk? Right. How do I focus on, you know, making sure that everything that I can foresee as a possible downside risk is eliminated? And over the long term, if you just you know we live in a wonderful system, right? Like people can achieve what they want to achieve, I and mean, it's really it's really terrific. But you have to be like prepared, right? So over the long term, because of the system we have. It's almost like if you just can avoid losing money, you'll make money, right? That's yeah. really the secret. All you, to make money, you just don't lose money. That's why Warren Buffett says that, right? And because the, the fact of the matter is you can have a lifetime of a success and it can all be wiped out in one oh, swoop, right? No yes. So that's what you have to guard against, right? To make sure that your losses aren't wiping out all of your successes. And if you can, if you can focus on those downside risks and minimize them to the extent possible, then, you're setting yourself for, up for a really good chance of success. So my program is really designed to help people think about those downside risks and, and avoid them and, and just eliminate them from their investing. And it's based on mistakes I made and things I've learned along the way. So the, the way to, to, to find that probably the best way is, is to join my, it's not currently open to new, new members. It will be open again to new members in, in uh, June, end of June, so the best way to, you know, get on the list and find out more about it is I've got a great download that you can get for free. It's called the ultimate checklist to syndicating deals or something like that. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, you can get it, go to multifamily slash ultimate dash checklist. Okay. So multifamily slash ultimate check checklist. So, um, You can download that, get on my list, or you can join my Facebook group, multifamily investment community on Facebook. Any one of those platforms will, you know, I'll be talking all about the program when it opens again and you can learn more then.
0: Yeah. And I would definitely recommend joining his Facebook group and checking out the check, the checklist. Um, because again, we have somebody who's calling his shot publicly. I think he's right. I think the only question is how long does the party go on? And if anybody's been to a New York new uh, New Year's party, they, they can go on for a lot longer than they should. And, um, you know, I think that's where we are. And, and, and we're both Buffett fans. The one that kind of struck me in this conversation is the one about the tide raising all ships. And then when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked.
1: Yeah. I love that one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) We, we are about to find it. The question is, is it 19, 2020, 21, 22? You you never know. So I think it's going to happen. Well, Jonathan, this has been so much fun for me. I appreciate you having this discussion. Uh, you're, you're, I, I respect everything you're doing, and I, I, truth be told, have liquidated a couple apartment buildings already, and I am going to put a, uh, a, a walkaway number on a couple of others that I still own because of this, this uh, conversation, so I appreciate you.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's been great fun being on the show, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. You got it, buddy. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you.